You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. Welcome back to the podcast with myself, Owen Walker. In this session, I'm speaking with Christy Sanderson on fighting fatigue in the ambulance service. So what I wanted to do is examine one of the commonest and greatest human factors within pre-hospital care, that of acute fatigue within practice. So the ambulance services are trying out different ways of working to help staff feel less tired at work and safer on scene. In the past, these actions have often been piecemeal, um, and we often don't know whether they're truly making a difference and indeed making environments safer. So what we wanted to do is just drill into some of the patient and staff outcomes that can be improved through development and implementation of um, something we're going to explore within the episode actually around fatigue risk management systems and we'll explore that with Christy uh, a little bit more and we'll also um, look at components of the FRMS which might be effective also look at investigating an optimal package of these interventions albeit a tool toolkit approach uh, and then look at some of Christy's uh, underlying presuppositions around FRMS adoption in the NHS and how it might be needing to have local tailoring and indeed understanding of barriers and facilitators. So we're also going to look at the way Christy is integrating a comprehensive fatigue risk management system for the UK NHS sector and the ambulance sector and looking at the, the acceptability, the feasibility and hopefully whether it's likely to improve patient outcome and staff well-being. So welcome, Christy, to the podcast. Thanks, Owen. It's great to uh, great to have you with me, actually. And what I wanted to maybe kick off with, Christy, is just if you could just pack your, unpack your background and interest in fatigue management for us. Yeah, so my original training is in uh, psychology and epidemiology, so, so population health. Um, and I've been working in the area of workplace health and wellbeing for about, must be close to 20 years now. Um, so my current research interest is focused on the health and well-being of health and social care staff. And I came into the sleep and fatigue field actually by request um, from an ambulance service that I had started working with. So this was just before the pandemic. They were hearing concerns from their staff around how to manage sleep and how to manage fatigue while on shift. So we got a little bit of seed funding um, to do a descriptive study with them looking at sleep concerns. Um, so it was just in one NHS ambulance service. Uh, but we did a survey, we did some qualitative interviews to kind of understand sleep quality and what might be contributing to disrupted sleep. Um, and we also did sort of a review of research um, of what was already out there um, in terms of uh, health and wellbeing for UK ambulance staff. And we found almost nothing on sleep and fatigue. So our study and other international studies was telling us that it was a massive problem, but we actually didn't have a great deal of direct evidence from the ambulance sector to sort of understand and unpack what we might be able to do. Um, so then uh, over time and with sort of a coalition of the willing, it sort of evolved into, into a large research study. So looking at the importance of fatigue um, and how much of a struggle it is really within everyone's life who does shift work, could you maybe just speak to how wide-reaching it is just on practice, concentration, decision-making, and indeed driving within the domain of personal care? Yeah, so certainly when we kind of look at our study, some new studies that have come out sort of since the pandemic, 
and the international literature looking at um, paramedics and emergency services, we can see that sort of anywhere between like two thirds to three quarters of staff will be experiencing significant fatigue on shift. So those numbers are quite shocking, but they're also consistent with the levels of fatigue we see in other health settings like in uh, emergency departments, for example. And if we kind of think about the immediate effects of fatigue, they do include things like difficulties concentrating, um, you might have difficulties with your memory, trouble finding the right word. So I think we can all quickly see how that could cause problems for clinicians. Um, I think an interesting one as well is that fatigue can also be associated with impairment of emotion regulation. So people may not be as calm as they usually are under pressure. Um, perhaps they may not be quite as skillful at diffusing challenging situations. Um, so all of these things together, I, I think we can, can all readily appreciate how they might kind of impact um, on a clinician's ability to deliver the care at the level they want to. Um, and of course, an obvious one for, for ambulance services as well as road traffic accidents, which you know, are very well known um, risk from fatigue, um, both from inattention, but also extreme drowsiness, um, which could also include like micro sleeps, for example. So nodding off at the wheel. Yeah, really interestingly, I know when I'm really acutely fatigued because my short-term memory just absolutely refuses to work. And the, the way I know that is through name calling, name calling, name recognition. So I might ask your name yeah. as, a, as a patient and I'll have immediately forgotten it. Uh, and so the, so the short-term memory retention just absolutely refuses to work. But could you maybe speak to some of the sort of second and third order effects of fatigue um, and what these might look like in practice. What I was, I was, I was thinking maybe the sort of the implementation of medicines and cross-checking of medicines and, but, and or any other second and third order effects. Yeah, so there's actually kind of quite a range and there, there are some studies that have looked at this specifically um, in the paramedic context, although, as I said, most of the evidence doesn't come from the UK, it comes from the US, Canada and Australia mostly. Um, of the sorts of things we can expect to see in terms of sort of heightened risks. So there's evidence that fatigued paramedics can be twice as likely to be injured on shift. Uh, and they're about one and a half times more likely to report a medical error. Um, so things like you've mentioned about um, whether it's a sort of incorrect clinical decision uh, or medication error or whatever it might be. Um, obviously, kind of as we mentioned, we also know that where ambulance staff are required to drive at high speed. Um, it may be on rural, rural and remote roads. Um, and also that, that staff are required to, to make often very complex clinical decisions in what might be an unpredictable physical environment. Um, so we can see if you're having trouble with your memory, having trouble with your concentration, having trouble with your emotional regulation, trying to make all of these complex clinical decisions in unfamiliar physical environments, um, I think we can appreciate how this might start a chain of actions that can lead to um, compromised staff and patient safety. Because we're interested, of course, in our sort of ultimate goal of improving patient safety. But for me, staff are front and centre of this as well, because one of the best ways to improve patient safety is to improve staff outcomes and safety as well. Christy, could you unpack and speak to what you're hoping to achieve from the CATNAPS study? Indeed, maybe just unpack the CATNAPS study, if that's okay, maybe some of the primary and secondary outcomes. 
Yeah, sure. So CATNAP stands for Co-Producing an Ambulance Trust National Fatigue Risk Management System for Improved Staff and Patient Safety. So you can see why we why we call it CATNAPS. Um, but the, the goal of CATNAPS is to help the NHS ambulance sector develop a fatigue risk management system. So an FRMS is simply a collection of recommended, ideally evidence-based actions that address um, what we call the root causes of fatigue and poor sleep. Um, and importantly, that are considered feasible and acceptable by staff. Uh, so this study um, was funded by the National Institute of Health Research. It's in progress, so we'll be running until March 2024. Um, and it's a piece of health services research, so it's, it's not a trial, um, where we are working with the NHS ambulance sector um, to understand what might work for them that can be tailored to their different ways of working, whether it's their regions, their communities, their staffing profile. So we're really, really keen to offer a flexible suite of options that makes sense for the people who will be looking to implement them. So we're going to develop this fatigue risk management system. We're going to develop some implementation guidance so ambulance services can tailor to their own setting and circumstances. Um, we're going to produce a prioritised list of outcomes um, so that they can track the impact of any changes that they might make over the coming years. So the way we're doing that is we've had kind of a long lead in time of compiling all of the evidence about what might work um, in the ambulance sector. So we're thinking really, really broadly here, which I'll, I'll give a couple of examples in a minute, but we basically wanted to have a look across any sector, any industry, what scientific evidence or practice-based evidence is there um, that could help us understand might, what, what might work in the ambulance sector so we can take that um, to staff and stakeholders and get them to tell us whether they think it will work or not. And we have a sort of a particular sort of implementation science framework that we're using to sort of help us unpack that evidence. Then we're doing some kind of detailed qualitative work with frontline staff and patients to really sort of understand on the ground how is fatigue experienced, um, what sort of facilities or physical areas do staff have if they're lucky enough to get a break? Do they have somewhere where they can have a quiet rest? Are they allowed to nap? This is something that we've discovered is hugely controversial. Some stations are quite positive towards staff if they're having a break um, to have a, a short sort of timed nap. Um, other um, staff are reporting that where they work, it's essentially a sackable offence if they're caught napping um, on shift. So this is a really interesting one for us because this is an evidence-based strategy that is recommended for fatigue risk management, um, but we can clearly see within the NHS and in particular in the NHS ambulance sector, there's huge diversity in how this kind of particular strategy is, is approached. So we're going to use our sort of detailed work to unpack some of that. And then we're pulling it all together um, to develop our sort of implementation guidance, which is effectively uh, a tool to help services prioritise what they want to change, how they want to change it, how they'll bring staff with them, um, and what sort of outcomes they'll be tracking going forward. So Christy, this might not be the right question, uh, and indeed the tool might not operate this way, but does how does the FRMS sort of stratify risk um, in, in regards to fatigue and how might it change our approach in practice? Yeah, probably the easiest way to explain that is that we're taking a systems or a public health approach that looks across all aspects of a person's life and working life that may be contributing to disrupted sleep or fatigue or to both. 
um, and importantly, considering what might be modifiable. So when I say sort of like a public health approach, the sorts of risk factors fatigue we've been looking at include health conditions. So there's the obvious ones, like if somebody has an actual sleep disorder, um, but we're also looking across mental health and physical health conditions that are known to disrupt sleep. So that could be chronic pain, it could be menopause, it could be post-traumatic stress disorder, it could be depression, alcohol misuse. We of course are looking at aspects of working life. So shift patterns, shift duration, whether people get breaks, what sort of alertness actions people kind of take on shift, work intensity, job stresses. But there's also a lot of things that people can kind of have control over themselves. So their sleep habits, um, do they drink close to when they go to bed? Are they doing heavy exercise just before they try and sleep? These are things that, that we can look at to understand our staff getting the right advice around what sorts of things they could change. And of course, there's a range of, I guess I'd call contextual information that we need to take into account here. So people live in different sorts of housing environments, different um, members of their household. They might live in a really large, noisy household. They might live in a really quiet household. Um, they might have certain sort of personal or cultural practices that we need to take into consideration when we're thinking about how can we help staff sleep better. So we're thinking really holistically. So when we think about risk stratification, for me, it's how we break down those risks and looking at what are our options for tackling some of those risks. So it probably helps to kind of give you the framework that we've grouped our sort of potential strategies we could include in an FRMS. So we've got two main types of approaches. So fatigue reduction, that's preventing fatigue and sort of reducing our root causes. And then we've got fatigue proofing. So that's where we're looking to minimise the consequences of fatigue for staff and patients. Because even if we did everything right, we provided all the best kind of sleep education. If we made sure everyone was getting help for their mental or physical health conditions, if we had the best design shifts in the world, there could still be people that might turn up on shift fatigued or develop fatigue on shift. So we need to have ways to keep people safe um, while they're working. So when we look at fatigue reduction, so this is our prevention, the big one here is design of working hours. But we also look at education and training around sleep and sleep patterns. We look at specific interventions for health and wellbeing. And we also look at what managers can be doing in this space in terms of very high level support, like having a fatigue risk management policy. At the moment, we know that only one of the 13 standalone ambulance trusts in the UK actually has a fatigue risk management policy. So that's probably a really good place to start. But then there's all the complexity of things we can do while on, while on shift. Um, we could use technology to identify when somebody is nodding off while driving. This could be a camera-based system in the cab, for example. Um, we're aware that some of the ambulance companies are actually future-proofing their ambulances by having spaces for cameras if the, if, the, if the sector chooses to sort of adopt this technology in sort of who knows five or ten years' time. Um, but there's all those things that clinicians and staff just do instinctively on shift when they're tired to try and stay awake. They will drink caffeine if they're allowed to, or they might have a sneaky nap. Um, they might use other sort of substances that are sort of known to be a stimulant. Um, they might do behavioural actions like moving around, listening to music, humour's a big one, um, you know, kind of keeping each other going by sort of talking and joking around a bit when you can. Um, so all of these things are focused on the type and level of risk. And we hope that what we've done through this evidence review um, is offering the sector 
a broad range of actions that they could take, some of which that they'll already be doing, but a lot which they haven't had the headspace to think of yet. So we sort of see it as our job as pulling all that evidence together for them, getting them to tell us why they think something will work or not, um, and then helping unpack what they think would be different if they choose to adopt some of these approaches. And it's great in a way that it's coming, or, or the posture is that it's kind of coming from them in a way that because I think there's probably more adoption and ownership when the recommendations are, are built in collaboration with the ambulance services. So I can see there's hopefully going to be really um, a lot of collective agreement um, with the ambulance services. But could you maybe speak to the archetypal 12, the sort of the 12 hour shift really? Because I, services internationally institute 24-hour shifts and these might not be as busy as say central London or other places within the UK but I certainly know from anecdotal experience of the peaks and troughs of fatigue you know and the the anecdotal evidence that you're 30% more cognitive fatigue at the end of a 12-hour night shift you you've got the equivalent of two three units of alcohol on board because your responses are so delayed could you could you maybe speak to what the research shows um around the peaks and troughs and or the cognitive fatigue on a on a, on a 12-hour shift yeah i think that the first point i'll make is just to acknowledge that many many staff like the 12-hour shift um, for both personal and financial reasons and that they're not yet ready to move on from it. Um, that being said, the evidence really is accumulating that 12-hour shifts are not really ideal for anyone. Some people do adapt to working 12-hour um, shifts, even if they've kind of have a run of a couple of day shifts and then move to a couple of sort of 12-hour night shifts. But many, many people do not ever adapt um, and they're a real struggle throughout their career. I think what's useful to think about the 12-hour shift is really how and when it's risky because if we acknowledge that while the evidence says 10-hour shifts are better, eight-hour shifts might be the best, um, we have to acknowledge that probably for some time we're still going to be working with the 12-hour shift model. And I think uh, you'll probably recognise, Owen, and many of your listeners will, about the, the sort of danger zone around that sort of 3 to 6 a.m. period when the you really feel that building pressure, um, the sleep pressure or urge to sleep that can happen at that time. You can feel cold, you can get the shakes. Um, some people report feeling really sick in their stomach, like quite nauseous um, and sleepy and drowsy at the same time. So you can understand in terms of sort of a physiological state to be, it's not, it's not very pleasant. And some people really experience this quite strongly. So we need to think about what we're asking people to do in those particular sort of high risk times um, and there have been kind of suggestions about how we might sort of modify um, tasks uh, for those particularly risky time periods within a 12-hour shift but we always kind of come back to the sort of the pr pragmatic approach of this study in that there's the evidence sitting here with all these kind of ideal things about what might be done. And then there's the reality of the huge demands on the sector at the moment that are the highest they have ever been. So we have to be realistic about what we can actually change um, and understand that we'll do what we can to support people when they're in risky hours. But in terms of, you know, complete redesign of shifts and patterns of work, um, we would say are likely a longer term goal. 
So Christy, from your perspective, how do we, what, what other ways do we experience fatigue? So I'm used to doing sort of a, a run of say four night shifts or four day shifts. And on that fourth night shift, you write the sleep pressure and or just the chronic fatigue of not really sleeping well over three days has has not only impinged on my decision making but my mood my patience my ability to de-escalate other people and indeed uh, be coherent um could you could you maybe speak to the incremental fatigue that sort of builds up over the aggregation of of 12-hour days or night shifts yeah, absolutely. I think it's a, it's a really important point. And the concept I like in the literature to sort of think around this is the idea of intershift recovery, because it's kind of exactly describing what you're talking about. So as you're working those run of nights, whether it's two, three, four, um, you will build up a sleep debt because when you come off your night shift, you will get a bit of sleep, but it's not going to be usually your preferred duration or the quality of sleep that you would like because you may be coming home trying to sleep in a noisy household or you want to spend time with your friends or family before you before you go and get some rest. Um, so that will have a cumulative effect in terms of building up this sort of prolonged sort of sleep debt of, of basically the, the difference between the number of hours you should have been asleep and the number of hours you've kind of actually been asleep and that is different for each person. And one thing we're kind of really interested in, I think, helping individuals and ambulance services think about is not just thinking about the individual, but thinking about their family as well. Because um, somebody who's done a run of nights, who's chronically fatigued, who's kind of right in the middle um, of a period of sleep debt, um, they may not be themselves. They might be a bit short tempered. They might be a little bit cranky. They might just be too tired really to engage in kind of any of the things they might normally do in their sort of normal home life. So I think we could do a much better job supporting families and friends um, of shift workers, whether it's NHS ambulance or kind of any other sort of shift work in sort of high demand kind of healthcare settings. So I think we've got a piece of work to do around how we bring families with us because they are often sort of the recipients of the consequences of this sort of extended fatigue. So Christy, could you unpack the change in logical model uh, that's associated um, with the study and sort of how it might look like in reality on the back of the catnaps study? Yeah, so one of the goals of the study is to try and map out quite a high level, what we call sort of logic model of the suite of options that, that trust could do. So like the inputs, the immediate changes we might see, and then kind of the longer term um, outputs and outcomes that we might see from these changes. So as part of our consultative work we're doing at the moment, so this is through um, workshops, through a survey, through staff interviews, we're asking for feedback on how we might sequence the actions that end up in a fatigue risk management system. So what needs to be in place first? Are there any early wins? What might be longer term actions? So an example is a fatigue risk management policy. Um, we might say it would be ideal to have that in place first, but actually we know from one of our ambulance services, the, the one that has gone down the path of developing it, it has taken them some years to do it. So we might say that's really important to sort of show that high level organisational buy-in, but there's a lot of things we could be doing um, while those sort of longer term strategic work is done. 
but that bit of work will help give us a sense, I guess, of any ordering of inputs that might be required. Then we'll map across to what changes we might see in the short term for staff. So this could be the things we've sort of talked about, like improved concentration, um, reduced risk for incidents or accidents. Uh, we would hope over time to see improved staff retention, improved staff wellbeing. We might see things like a reduction in sickness absence, um, with all of these ultimately leading to safer patient care and a, and a positive patient experience. So obviously this is a very complex causal map we're talking about here, which is why it necessarily will be quite high level. But I think it's a really useful way of capturing all of the information that staff and patients will be telling us about what they'd like to see done differently and how they think it might make a difference either to delivery of care or to experience of care. I couldn't agree with you more actually, because I think, I think the wide ranging impacts um, from mitigating strategies uh, would actually affect, like you said, families, friends, quality of life, quality of sleep, uh, quality of decision making. And like you said before, ultimately quality of patient care, which is what it's all about, actually. Um, but I, it, you're right, it's so multifactorial and sleep is so multifactorial. And I'm certainly guilty of caffeine abuse, chronic caffeine abuse uh, over time. And but but there comes a point where caffeine abuse doesn't work anymore. You know, there's only so much caffeine you can take and and it's really not mitigating the buildup of adenosine in the brain and the sleep pressure, which is which is which is building up. Um, but so it's really interesting, like you said, multifactorial. It'd be really interesting to know uh the results as 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 you find them out just as an adjoiner question before we come into land christy when from an aspirations perspective when are you hoping to develop the project to the next level where you've got some robust results that you can release to ambulance services and indeed the wider population yeah so we've released our first bit of work um, to ambulance services in terms of people who are working with us in unpacking the evidence. So they've kind of already got an early look of the evidence that we're working with. But in terms of broader communication, it will be uh, early 2024 where we'll start sort of our major um, communication of results. There will be sort of little bits along the way that, that we'll be able to talk about that we'll be looking to get published and peer reviewed along the way. But in terms of our overall bringing it all together um, piece of work, um, will be early 2024. That's fantastic. And I'd love to actually touch base with you again uh, at that time and we can just unpack unpack the wider results uh, then. But just as we come into land, Christy, on the conversation, are there any take-home messages for listeners that you'd, you'd like to mention that they could indeed sort of take away and or integrate within their, within their own practice? I suppose I'd, I'd like to finish with some of the guiding principles of this work, because I, I think for me, that's really important to sort of understand how we're positioning and, and contextualising this, this piece of work. So, I mean, emergency services, as with much of the NHS, as we know, um, are under extraordinary demand at the moment. So we absolutely acknowledge that more resources would solve a lot of the staffing related fatigue issues. 
Um, but we want to keep emphasising that there are many other contributing factors that we need, need to look at as well. So while it's absolutely important to solve the staffing crisis, there's lots of other things we can be working on and looking at as, as we try and work towards that. I also want to emphasise that we absolutely respect that staff will continue to work, um, what the evidence might say, is potentially unsafe patterns or hours for what I would say are legitimate or at least understandable reasons. Um, and that could be financial, it could be commitment to community. Um, something that really sticks in my mind is a conversation I had with them um, some paramedics from Scottish Ambulance Service. So they may have a single clinician who is covering a large scale area in terms of they are the one person who was on call. They are not one going to be wanting to do a fatigue risk score or tool on themselves to see if they're safe to respond. They will respond because their community needs them and they are all that's available. So we absolutely have to respect that um, and work with across all this sort of diversity of working patterns. So I suppose just to finish, we, you know, we're really taking a pragmatic approach with catnaps. Um, we really want to emphasise we are using a harm minimisation approach as really the only feasible option. That means that compromises and trade-offs are inevitable, but we can do what we can when we can, because I'm very much a firm believer that we can do these small steps while running al alongside sort of our longer term, more strategic and preventative efforts. Um, and I'll finish with that um, smaller steps are always better than no steps. Listen, that's a great place to finish and no truer words spoken, really. Um, just that incremental approach is, is, is absolutely key. Um, Christy, thank you so much for your time over this past hour and your perspectives. We'll put links to the CatNap study and indeed to the, to the information which you have on the internet. And uh, thank you once again. Fantastic. Thanks very much, Owen. You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. 